Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. When a new president gets inaugurated into office, there's usually a speech, and then there's a dignified affair, and there's the pomp and circumstances, and maybe a reception or a parade. But that's not what happened on March 4th, 1829, at the swearing-in of Andrew Jackson as president. He gave his inaugural speech. He retired to the White House thinking it would be a formal reception. But here's the issue. He was so popular that a crowd of about 20,000 people, some coming from 100 miles away, descended onto the White House. They were drunk. They were rowdy. They were excited. They, they began climbing on furniture, knocking over chandeliers in the White House, mind you, trying to see the president, this mob. And so Jackson's staff did something that was really smart. Um, they gave the crowd free alcohol, thinking that would calm them down. And so that didn't help. It got more rambunctious, more crazy, that Andrew Jackson, rumor has it, had to sneak out of a window and go to a nearby hotel in Washington, D.C. to to escape the, the drunk mob. But things got better when they moved tubs of whiskey punch out onto the White House lawn where people could go out there and drink and get drunk. So... That's what happened at the inauguration of Andrew Jackson. Some wild and crazy party, unexpected party at the White House. Now, I'm not going to ask you to confess this morning, but probably some of you have been to some wild and crazy parties in your time where some things happened that were a little rambunctious. Things got crazy. It was loud. It was out of control. There was a frenzy of maybe even immorality happening. It just got all crazy. But what if God's people, the Israelites, partied like crazy, made a lot of noise and got all wild and rambunctious over a golden calf? I would say to them, don't have a cow, man. Don't have a cow. Today we see the most offensive and graphic display of idolatry pretty much in the Old Testament, at least in the book of Exodus. And John Calvin has famously said this, the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. Men in almost all ages since the world began set up imaginary idols before their eyes to take the place of God. Your mind, your heart, our minds, our hearts are perpetual factories of idols. We, we love to churn out things to worship that take the place of God. Now, before we dive into Exodus 32, we need to get our bearings straight. We need to kind of 
figure out where we've been because we've taken a little bit of a break from the book of Exodus through Christmas. And so I want to just ask you to backtrack just for a few moments. I know I asked you to open to Exodus 32, but if you would just go back to Exodus chapter 24 for just a moment. Go back to Exodus 24 because this sets the stage for everything that we looked at last fall. And I want, to, I want you to know where Moses is while this is happening. So Exodus chapter 24, starting in verse 15, Moses went up on the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So how long was he up there? 40 days and 40 nights. And so that's where Moses is. Now, what is Moses getting up there on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights? Everything that we looked at last fall, from Exodus chapter 25 through Exodus chapter 31, Moses is receiving explicit instructions on how to build the tabernacle, down to the most minute of details. So everything that Moses is getting up on the mountain centers on worship. How would Israel worship God correctly, properly, faithfully with the tabernacle, with the sacrificial system? And so you have to ask a question. Okay, as Moses has been up on the mountain for the past 40 days and 40 nights, what's going on down below? The natives are getting restless down below. What's Israel doing as they're waiting for Moses? It's only been 40 days. He's up on the mountain. They're down below. What happens? Well, let's look at our text this morning in Exodus 32. This is such an important passage of Scripture that I want to go slow through it. I want to read it carefully. We're not going to get through all of Exodus 32 this morning. We're just going to look at the first 10 verses. But this morning, we're just going to ask a basic question, one question. I think it's a very important question. So here's the question for today. What exactly is idolatry? What, what is idolatry? I mean, we, we use the word a lot in church. Don't worship idols. Don't give in to idolatry. Don't be an idolater. And for some of you, that might sound weird. You're thinking in your head, well, I don't go out in my backyard and worship a statue. I, I'm not an idolater. I don't worship idols. This doesn't really apply to me. What is idolatry? Well, we're going to see the graphic and detailed description of idolatry and all of its ugliness this morning in the episode of the golden calf. So let's read together Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it 
And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What is idolatry? What causes idolatry? Where, where does it stem from? Now let's think about our history here. Historically, what's happened to the Israelites? Where have they been for 400 years? They've been in Egypt. They have lived smack dab in the middle of pagan idolatry for 400 years. And it's only just a few months since they've been out of that. And in the few months that they've been out of pagan idolatrous Egypt, what has God graciously done for them? Well, God took them through the Red Sea. God led them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. God provided manna and quail for them. God defeated their enemies, the Amalekites. God brought water out of the rock. God has been gracious to them. God has met their needs. God has led them. God has provided for them. But old habits die hard. So when Moses is gone, they go back to what they knew the best. What do they go back to? They go back to Egypt in their hearts. Stephen, when he's giving that speech before he gets stoned, says this in Acts 7.39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside in their hearts. They turned to Egypt. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. They didn't physically go back to Egypt, but in their hearts, they wanted to return back to what was comfortable, what they knew. Mickey read this earlier as a reminder of us about what Paul says in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 6-7. Now these things, talking about the Exodus, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul is referencing the golden calf here. He says, don't desire evil as they did. Don't desire evil in your hearts. And Paul here says, Exodus 32 serves as an example for us of how not to give in to idolatry. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So idolatry is first and foremost a matter of the heart. Where is your heart when it comes to the things of the Lord? So from this passage of Scripture, we see four descriptions of idolatry. Four graphic descriptions, four, four ways that idolatry manifests itself. And so let's look at these. They may not seem that obvious to you, but as you read deeply into this passage of Scripture, you begin to understand exactly what's going on. So here's the first. We become idolaters when we get impatient with God's timing. When we get impatient with God's timing. Okay, look at verse 1. The people are getting impatient because Moses is up on the mountain. And it says in your Bible, they gathered themselves together to Aaron. It's a really tame translation. Really, it meant they gathered in hostility toward Aaron. Really, they ambushed him. 
It was a mob mentality. They were impatient. They were frustrated. They were fearful. They didn't know where Moses was. And so here's the question. Why didn't they know where Mo- why didn't why did they uh, say we don't know where Moses was? They knew where Moses was. Where was Moses? He's up on the mountain. We know where he is. He just hasn't come down yet. And so they're getting impatient. They're getting frustrated. And see, here's the root cause of idolatry. Insecurity. Fear. Impatience. Why in the world would they ask Aaron to make an idol for them after what they've just been through? Here's why. They were insecure. They were impatient. They were fearful. What did God promise them? God said, listen, all the way back to to, to Abraham, I'm going to give you the promised land. You're going to get to the promised land. You're going to be in a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to have this great land, this great possession. You're going to get it. I promise to you. But here's the thing. It's not happening on their timetable. It's not happening fast enough. They're not there yet. They get impatience. Here's the the thing. God had not told the Israelites when he's going to take them to the promised land, just that they're going to get there. And secondly, God didn't tell them how long Moses was going to be up on the mountain, just that they needed to wait for him. So they needed to wait on God. But they didn't wait on God. They began to get afraid. They began to get insecure. It's not moving fast enough. Moses isn't here. We need to move the timetable forward. So we get impatient. We get fearful. Many of us have various phobias. Let me list some phobias this morning and see if any of you have this. Now, don't raise your hands because it may be embarrassing. But let me give you the first phobia. Pogonophobia. Anybody have that fear? It's fear of beards. Okay, so some of you are hipsters. You know, you got fear of beards. Okay? Taraphobia. Fear of bulls. Anybody here fear of bulls? Xenoglossophobia. Fear of foreign languages. Bataphobia. And it's not fear of bats. Okay? Bataphobia is fear of being close to high buildings. Okay, some of you kids, I know you have this. Didascalinophobia. So when your parents say, kids, it's time to go to school, say, I have didascalinophobia. It's fear of school. Okay, I have didascalinophobia. Remember that, kids. That's a good word. I have a fear of schools. Some of you had this fear this morning, isotropophobia. It's a fear of mirrors. You woke up and said, whoa, what's that looking back at me? It's it's a fear of mirrors. Geliophobia. Some of you have geliophobia. It's a fear of laughter. Okay, some of you kids may have this too when you're eating lunch this afternoon. You may have lachanacophobia. That's a fear of vegetables. Say, Mom, I don't want to eat my Brussels sprouts because I have lachanacophobia. And I don't want to go to school tomorrow because I have didascalinophobia. And your parents will think, you're really smart. You're just trying to get out of things. And then there's metrophobia. I know a lot of you have metrophobia. That's fear of poetry. Okay, so some of you may have that this morning. Now, There are a lot of things that make you fearful, make you impatient. And I just want you to stop and think about what are some things in your life that make you insecure, that make you impatient? And you don't want to wait on God. You want to push the timetable ahead on your agenda 
Because God calls you to walk by faith, not by sight. So first and foremost, idolatry really comes from this impatience, this fear, this insecurity. God's promised us the promised land, but Moses has been gone for too long. I'm getting impatient. I'm getting fearful. Instead of waiting on God, instead of trusting on God, I'm going to start doing things myself. And then you start putting your trust in other things to take the place of God. And that becomes an idol to give you security. To give you that security that your heart wants. So that's, that's the first thing we see here in patience. Frustration. Insecurity. All right, what's the second mark of idolatry we see here? Secondly, we become idolaters when we do things our way instead of God's way. When we do things our way instead of God's way. Now, are they ignorant of the Ten Commandments? No. Go back to Exodus 20 for a moment. Just, let's just remind ourselves, we spent last summer on the Ten Commandments. I know it's been a long time, but hopefully you at least have the first two memorized. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Pretty clear, right? Second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. They're not ignorant. They were there at the base of the mountain when they heard the Ten Commandments. The mountain quaked. The mountain shook. They heard the Ten Commandments. There was no ambiguity. There was no confusion. Moses gave it to them. They heard it. And we know they heard it because I want you to turn to chapter 24 for a moment. After the giving of the law, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, what did the people say? They knew it. They made a commitment in chapter 24. Look at verse 3. Chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Look, go down to verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Not only had they heard the Ten Commandments, but what did they, they, they all came together and said, we're going to obey. We hear it. We understand it. We know it. We're going to obey. We've got great intentions to obey the Lord. James 1.22, but be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Isn't that what we do when it comes to certain sins in our lives? What do we say to God? I promise I'll never do it again. I'll never ever do it again, God. And it's such an ingrained addiction in your heart, whether that be Drugs or alcohol or pornography or immorality or gluttony or, or gossip, whatever that addiction is, and, and you keep going back to it and you keep promising God, I promise I'll never do it again. I promise I'll never do it again. I'll obey you this time. But the idol's gotten so deep in your heart that it just becomes second nature 
You want to do things your way instead of God's way. Now, let's go back to Exodus 32. They can't plead ignorance that they didn't know what they were doing. So they're impatient, they're insecure, and they want to do things their way. And so if you read the language of how Aaron actually makes the golden calf, he takes there in verse 2, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears, your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received from them the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. This was probably something that took more than a day to accomplish, if you think about it. Everybody bringing their gold, melting it down, then actually taking some type of device to carve the golden, to, to make the golden calf, and then to, to, to use the stylus and, or, or whatever instrument. This is not just like a half-hearted, hey, we're going to throw things together. This would have taken a while to build, to get everybody's gold, to melt it down. But notice in verse 1 what the people say when they ambush Aaron. Up, make us gods, plural, lowercase that shall go before us. Do they not know that there's only one God who's the Lord? Why are they looking for gods? What does God say about himself? Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, what's the significance of a calf? When you think of a calf, what do you think of? It's really similar to what we think of out here in northeastern Colorado with cattle. Actually, the word in the original language means young bull. What's a bull known for? Power, virility, potency. It was the power of of potency in Egyptian mythology. It was probably the bull god Apis. In other words, what are the people saying? God's not powerful enough to lead us. We're going to create something we think is powerful. And the only thing we know of is back in Egypt, the, the symbol of a bull. It's, it's powerful. It's, it's virile. It's, it's strong. So let's, let's make a young bull. Philip Graham Ryken said this. I like his quote. He said, quote, Once again, it was proving to be more difficult to get Egypt out of Israelites than it was to get the Israelites out of Egypt. The Israelites left Egypt, but Egypt had not left them. Now, what's even more shocking is look at verse 5. Okay, it's, it's not shocking enough that Aaron makes the bull. But he does something really weird in verse 5. It should have caught your attention. What, what's going on in verse 5? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Does that make any sense? What should it, what should it read there? Tomorrow we'll make a feast to the calf. Tomorrow we'll make a feast to Yahweh, the Lord very strange because they had just built a false god. They just broken the second commandment. And the next day they're going to have a feast to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
We don't know what's going on in Aaron's mind, but maybe he can think at least we're worshiping the Lord in name only, even though we built a a golden calf over here. Here's why it's dangerous. Here's what Aaron's doing. It's very dangerous. He's mixing or he's mingling true and false religion together as if God doesn't care. I'm going to make a golden calf, but the next day we're going to worship the Lord with the golden calf. There are a lot of churches today that mix and mingle true and false elements. They may have a worship service. They may sing songs. They may even read out of the Bible. They may look all all like they're doing the right things that you'd want in a worship service, but their theology or their doctrine or their beliefs may be false or may be immoral. You see, we can say we obey Jesus with our mouths, but in our lifestyle have a false teaching or immoral practices. You see, we want to control God. We want to worship God the way we want to worship God. We want to set the rules. Aaron, make for us a golden calf. Okay, they made a golden calf, but then Aaron says, okay, tomorrow we're going to sacrifice to the Lord as if God doesn't care that we're, sacri- that we're feasting to the, the one true God, but using a golden calf in, in, in his place. It, it doesn't make any sense. Now, here's the irony. I hope you see what's going on down below and what's going on up above. What's going on on the ground level? Rampant pagan idolatry. What's Moses doing when he's up on the mountain? What's Moses doing up on the mountain? Moses is getting instructions on how Israel's to worship. And God's being very detailed with Moses. Here's exactly how I want you to build the tabernacle. Here's exactly how it's going to look. Here's exactly how I'm prescribing for you to worship. You don't make up how you worship, Israelites. I tell you how to worship, and I'm giving Moses detailed instructions up here on the mountain. If you just wait for him, he's going to come down and tell you. But you're too impatient to wait for him to come down, that you're making up the rules as you go along and say, this is how I want to worship, whether God cares about it or not. We're just going to kind of throw God's name out there. We'll worship to the Lord, but we're really going to make a God that we can control. We don't like a God that speaks from the cloud. We don't like a God that hovers over the tabernacle in this glory cloud that that just speaks from a mountain. We want a God we can touch. We want a God we can feel. We want a God we can control. We want something tangible. We want a God we can see. We don't want to trust the invisible God. We want to create our own God that we can can manipulate and we can manage. So let's make a golden calf because at least we can control it. We can control the worship. R.C. Sproul said this. They had a God they could control. They made it. They could discard it and destroy it. And listen to what R.C. Sproul says. The cow gave no law, demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. They wanted a God on their terms. So they were impatient. They were fearful. They were insecure. They said, you know what? We're just going to do things our way. Now, what's the third mark of of idolatry that we see in this passage of Scripture? We become idolaters, number three, when we give in to peer pressure. Think about Aaron for a moment. 
you wonder if we ever stopped to think what he was doing. I mean, think about the time it took for him to smelt down the gold and to fashion. It says Aaron fashioned it. We don't know how long it took, but it probably took him a while. Did he ever stop and think, what in the world am I doing? Did he ever stop dead in his tracks and say, wait, well, wait a minute, time out. What in the world am I doing? This is not a passive activity where, where Aaron's just kind of like going with the flow. No, he gave in to peer pressure. And he said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to melt this gold down. I'm going to fashion this golden calf. I'm going to take the stylus and I'm, I'm going to do all the details. His heart was so wrapped up in it that he was doing something foolish. You know, that's what idolatry does to you. It clouds your vision. You, you get engrossed in idolatry and you stop to think, what in the world am I actually doing here? I'm so far gone. What am I doing here? Do you, do you ever stop and step back and say, what am I doing? Aaron's kind of like the associate pastor here, okay? Moses, the senior pastor, is up on the mountain meeting with God. Okay, so Sean's up on the mountain. Andrew's down below. No, I'm just joking. No, no, we're not going to make that. So Moses is the key leader. He's up there. He's hearing from God. Aaron's second in command. He's a spiritual leader. What does he do? Do you ever see Aaron praying? Do you ever, ever see Aaron consulting the other elders of Israel? Do you see Aaron stopping and saying, now wait a minute, Israelites, this is an evil thing. Don't, we're not going to go there. Just, just wait a few more days. Moses will come down. We, we, we had the Ten Commandments. This is an evil thing. Stop, Israel. I'm your leader. Let's not do it. I get mad at Aaron when I look at this. because, like, what are you doing? You're like being run over. You're, you're caving to the peer pressure, Aaron. And then I think, wow, how easy it is to give in to peer pressure. In my Bible reading, I've started reading the book of Luke for the first of the year, and I was struck by one of Jesus' statements. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's version, Jesus said something that just kind of stuck out to me as I was thinking about this. He's talking to people, and he's pronouncing a woe. In Luke 6.26, Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. When people speak well of you. Don't we really like that? We, we want people to speak well of us. I want people to like me. I don't want to go against the flow. I don't want to appear weird. I, I don't want to offend. I, I just want people to like me. I, I want to give in to the peer pressure. I, I don't want to stand out in the crowd. It's a whole lot easier just to go along with the flow and have people like me than to stand up for truth and to stand up for righteousness and to stand up for God's word. And that's what Aaron's doing here. He's giving into peer pressure. He wanted Israel to like him. Who knows, maybe with Moses being gone, it went to his head and he thought, here, I'm the leader. I just want these people to like me. I don't want to have to make the hard decisions. I want them to admire me, to like me. And we give in to peer pressure because it's easier to say yes to the crowd than it is to say no and go with God. And what happened? What do they do? Well, verse 6, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down and eat and drink and rose up to what? What does your Bible say? Play. That word in the original language has some sexual overtones, gross debauchery. Probably a drunken orgy with wild dancing, loud music, 
mayhem of all sorts. So idolatry starts in the heart. It's from fearful insecurity, impatience. You want to do things your way instead of God's way, and then you give in to peer pressure. But let's look at the fourth. Our idolatry is ultimately offensive to a holy God. Let's just read verses 7 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. That's some strong language. God is hot with anger. And we'll get to this next week that so much so he says, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you, with you, Moses. But what have they done? What's this idolatry resulted in? Look at verse 7. They've corrupted themselves. They've, they've acted perverse. They've acted dirty. It's, it's corrosive. And then notice what he says there in verse 8. Look how quickly they've turned aside. Look how quickly. Just days earlier, what did they say? God, everything that you've commanded us, we will do. Just a few days later, what are they doing? They're making a golden calf. How quickly the tide has turned. How quickly they've given in to the idolatry. How quickly. And then in verse 9, God calls them a stiff-necked people, an obstinate, stubborn people. It's interesting how the psalmist expresses their idolatry because the psalmist uses a word that's very key to what idolatry is, and Paul picks up and uses that same word. I'm going to emphasize that word when I read it because it's a very important word when it comes to idolatry. Psalm 106, 19 through 23. They made a calf and Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged, that's the key word you want to see there, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. They had exchanged the glory of God. They traded it in for something. They had the glory of God, and they traded it in for a calf. How stupid is that? Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 when he describes idolatry. He uses that same language. Romans 1, 22-25. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. They do, there's two things about idolatry here. Two, two damning exchanges. You exchange the glory of God for something created, and you exchange the truth of God for a lie. So, so here's what idolatry is. In your heart, you're saying, I would rather have anything else besides the glory of God and the truth of God. I don't want those two things. I don't want God's glory. I don't want God's truth. So I'm going to trade those two things in for something else that's going to give me what I think I need, whether it's a created thing, another person, an idol. You've made the exchange. 
You see, they did not want to trust in a God who was invisible. They wanted a God they could control. They wanted convenience. Moses is up there too long. We don't know what he's doing up there. Let's get busy down here doing what we want to do. Let's make a God we can control. Let's make a God that gives us comfort. Let's give us a God that makes us, that's convenient. Let's just do something we can control. It was foolish. It was corrosive. It was stubborn. And the psalmist said they exchanged the glory of God for a calf. And Paul says we exchanged the glory of God for a created thing. And we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So what is idolatry? Well, idolatry happens when you get impatient, when you get insecure, and you begin to do things your own way instead of God's way, and you get impatient, you don't wait upon Him, and you, you give in to peer pressure, and you, 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 you rush headlong into sin, and ultimately, you become corrupt, and you become stiff-necked and rebellious. And then ultimately you make this damning exchange. You exchange the glory of God for a created thing and the truth of God for a lie. And here's what you think. Those other things will give me what I need as opposed to God. I really can't trust God to give me what I need. Those other things will give me what I need. Forget you, God. You're not doing it my way in my timetable. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says this. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run from it. Get away from idolatry. 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Flee from idolatry. Keep yourself from idols. Ezekiel 14, 3 says this. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling blocks of their iniquity before their faces. They've taken idols into their hearts. So let me ask you a question. What do you do if you've taken an idol into your heart? If you have an idol, what do you do? If you read down further in that passage of Scripture, here's what Ezekiel 14, 6 says. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. You need to repent of your idolatry. And you see, here's what repentance is. Repentance is you turn from your idols and as you're turning from your idols, you're turning toward Christ. You're finding in Christ that satisfaction that your heart desires. You're finding in Christ that security that your heart desires. You're finding in Christ that direction. What are all the things Israel's looking for? They're looking for security. They're looking for direction. They're looking for hope. And instead of looking to God for direction and hope and security, they're looking to a, to a dumb golden calf. Only Jesus because of his death, burial, and resurrection as your Savior and Lord, is the only one qualified to direct you, to lead you, to save you, to give you the security, to give you the, the peace, to give you the satisfaction. If you look in all these other places for what only Christ can give you, you're making that exchange. Only in Jesus will you find what your heart truly desires. 
the lie of the world is that Jesus is not what you need. Jesus is all that we need. He died on a cross. He rose again. He can forgive your sins. He can give you that that peace that passes understanding. So when you find yourself tempted to be fearful or insecure or impatient or to have an idol, to, to, to trade in or replace the glory of God for something created, and you're looking for something else to give you comfort, what do you do at that moment? You look to Jesus, and then you begin to remember Remember in your heart how he's been faithful to you in the past. Remember how he's blessed you in the past. Remember how he's guided you in the past. Remember how he's led you in the past and and helped you in the past and and showered you with blessings in the past. And when when you begin to fix your eyes on Jesus, then your heart clings to him. Your heart is drawn to him. Your security comes from him. And the more you look to Jesus, the more you'll say no to those idols. So I'm going to say it again. Don't have a cow. Instead, place all your trust in Jesus alone this morning. Let me ask you to bow your heads. And I want you just to spend a few moments Asking the Lord to search your heart. Number one, to see if there's any idol there. And number two, if there is one, asking him to give you the grace to repent and to fix your eyes on Jesus. Who's the only one that can meet your needs and give you that satisfaction and direction and desire and security that you desperately need. Would you spend a few moments going before the Lord in prayer? Father, help us to be honest this morning with our own hearts. We do have idols. We just are afraid to admit it. I'm sure all of us have those things or those people or the situations that we cling to to bring us security, to bring us comfort. And we know that those things aren't you, Jesus. We've traded in your glory for something that you created. And it's not a golden calf, but it could be all manner of things that our hearts are drawn to. So my prayer for us all this morning, Lord, is that we would repent of our idolatry. And we would turn and find in you, Jesus, the only one that can truly meet all of our deepest needs the only one that can truly satisfy those deep longings in our heart, the only one that can give us true security. Jesus, you're the only one that can give us true purpose and meaning. Forgive us for the times that we go seeking other places to find what you alone can give. May we this week not give in to peer pressure, May we wait upon you, Lord, when we get impatient. Will we not try to do things our way, but your way? 
And when we truly see how offensive our idolatry is to you. Thank you for your grace, Jesus, that you give us day by day, minute by minute. When we do fail, you forgive us. You've given the Holy Spirit to live in us, to empower us, to walk in holiness. Help us not to forget who we are. So thank you, Jesus, that you are greater than anything that we could ever imagine. Help us to understand the breadth and the height and the depth and the width of your great love for us. And when we think about your love for us, we won't think about idols because we'll be so wrapped up in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.